Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to South by Southwest and the Zeiss Conversations panel with uh, the gentleman next to me here, who I will introduce in a second. Glad you all could make it. We're going to talk a little bit about cinematography today uh, and the art thereof and, and how this kind of movie gets put together. So the gentleman joining us today and the, the, the conversation uh, that we'll have with him is Robert McLaughlin. He is a cinematographer uh, with the ASC in the United States and CSC in Canada. He is a cinematographer most noted for a variety of things that you, I'm sure you've seen. Um, Game of Thrones, Westworld, Ray Donovan, The Commish, if anybody's older than me, um, might, might remember that one as well. Um, as well as currently Shining Girls and um, American Gigolo, the reboot that just happened as, as episodic. So we're going to talk to him about how he approaches cinematography and, and, and how we get from, from just the conversation about it to actually putting on the screen. And then, of course, we're happy to take your questions and get as in-depth and technical as you'd like. Um, so a little bit about you, Robert, that I found uh, from your About page that I was noticing. Um, I was uh, Canadian by, uh, by birth. Yeah, you, did some, you did some time as a, as a professional uh, sports person and before moving towards cinematography and filmmaking. Yeah, I was, I'm actually American by birth, but oh, I was raised I'm in Canada. about that. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I, and I, uh, I had what was considered a fairly promising career as a uh, competitive cyclist uh, when I was young. Um, but I was kind of getting to that point where, you know, back then there wasn't a lot of support and uh, it was, there wasn't really a way to make a living doing it. Uh, it was, you know, pre, uh, uh, pre-popularity in, in North America. Anyway, and I started to get access to uh, movie cameras and girls and that was it for the cycling <laughs> so um yeah and the, the movie cameras were kind of took first place for a long time <laughs> i can see how that can happen um so that's great and then you'd spent a lot of time kind of building your your early career in canada uh, shooting um commercials i believe yeah i, I actually it, it, there wasn't really a a, a big motion picture industry up there yet Hollywood kind of discovered Vancouver around the late 80s and it really was taking off by the early 90s kind of the way it did in Austin about 10 years after that and um, so there wasn't really a lot of opportunities or openings so I, I, I had made a couple of documentaries uh, they caught the attention of a, of a CEO at a, at a big uh, store and he hired me to make some more I created a production company called Omni Film Productions in uh, it would have been around 1979 and uh, it's still in business today, and it has about 35, 40 full-time employees just to keep the doors open. It's, it's, it's a going concern. My, wow. my, my former partner, uh, who, I, who I partnered with in the early 80s to make um, environmental activism films for Greenpeace and a number of other organizations, uh, continued running it, and uh, it's, it's a big success. I... I separated myself from it a long time ago because I was spending too much time sitting at a desk and what I wanted to do was be on set shooting movies and and by then I'd really established a career uh, gotten into the union uh, the you know the theatrical uh, industry had taken off there and um, I was I, I once I started I never stopped basically until until COVID <laughs> As we all did, and back at the desk for a couple of years, right? Um, so yeah, no, you, yeah, that's fantastic. I didn't, I didn't know that it was still operational. That's wonderful. Yeah. The, um, yeah, you certainly have a, a very large breadth of current work um, coming out of those days. Well, uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, well, I, I got a break. I was like ridiculously young, but I'd done a low-budget feature, and a producer I'd, I'd worked with on some little indie. They were almost training. Uh, uh, dramas to try and bring up local talent before there was really any theatrical business there. Um, saw some potential, I guess, and he hired me to do this long-running Canadian TV series, adventure series called The Beachcombers, which um, was in its then 17th season. I ended up doing the last um, three seasons of it. Um, it, it, it was, I mean, it was ridiculous because it was a show I loved watching when I was a little kid. And now here I was shooting it. But the thing about it was that it gave it, 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 it threw every possible uh, filming, you know, situation at you. Um, it shot a lot of it on the ocean, um, adventure, romance. I mean, it had a little bit of everything because it had to be everything for everybody in the country. And um, it was it was it was a very popular show. But uh, a lot of the people, a lot of the alumni from that had gone on and worked on a 
much bigger version of that, which at the time was the biggest show on television, which was the original MacGyver. And I got hired to work on that initially as a second unit uh, DP and eventually main unit DP. And, um, and that really, it just, you know, there were some lovely older guys on it who, who again, saw some potential and, and, you know, said the, the, the you know, in, really important things to me like um don't worry you're going to have a career in this business just 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 keep doing what you're doing and and i did and um you know of course luckily you know it, it, it was a case where you you know and my advice to a lot of people who are trying to get into the business is is look at where it's exploding where it's really growing fast and you know like uh 20 years ago i was saying you know go to austin go to go to go to new you know louisiana it's taking off there uh later atlanta and so forth and i was you know because that was based on my experience of being in a place where that happened and i had the right skill set i'd done my 10,000 hours as malcolm gladwell would say and i didn't i didn't mess it up when i got the opportunity to uh to to shoot this much bigger stuff with a and and of course once you had a a major american network credit um uh, you're basically away to the races, and the thing, and, and and it was a much bigger deal then than it is now because back then they were only making what, at most twenty, TV dramas, big budget TV dramas, at a time. Now there's hundreds and hundreds, but so you know it was that was that was a real break, and that led to this show, which is um, <laughs> I actually watched. <laughs> I went up for the first time in 30 years and was pretty embarrassed by, but, um, you know, it's all, it's all good practice. And, and the thing is you don't get better at something by thinking about it or just going to movies or thinking about them. Or, you know, I, I had friends who, who had the luxury of waiting for, you know, a really nice indie feature to come along and they, 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 um, you know, had much more prestigious credits than I was building. I didn't have a choice. I had a, I got married young. I had a couple of kids. I had to work. And the thing is, and, and it, 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 that it, just doing your job day in and day out, sometimes it's, sometimes you're not making anything you're too proud of at the end of the day, but other days you're walking home with your head held high feeling like, yeah, we really did some great stuff today. And, and, and I, you know, I, to this day, I, 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 I still hope for as, you know, to have more of those days than the other ones. I, you know, I was watching this because I, I was like, he did the commish, all the episodes. Um, but there's a lot of good quality, you know, I, I can see the beginnings of, of where you were headed in that and, and how that translated to future. You were telling me this was originally shot on 16 millimeter. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing is that it was really good training because back then, um, you, know, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff was still being shot on 16. And of course, 16 millimeter is much less forgiving than 35 is. So if you could... and. And this had happened with my production company too. We 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 had to make it look great, but we also had to do it fast enough and cheap enough to to keep our doors open. But it had to be good enough to get the next job. And um, sixteen millimeter was a really good way to hone your skills. And because if you could make sixteen mil look good, thirty five was easy. And 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 you know that that has sort of some of the things I learned shooting sixteen millimeter and the disciplines of of just you know getting the balances right and enough fill so on and so forth um you know they've stuck with me today and and you know it's just deeply ingrained and it's been it was it was very useful experience wonderful you know and, and we talk a lot about cameras and lenses but really there's a there's a lot of the art that that's embedded in the lighting um you know as a cinematographer do you do you feel that there's a lot of that education or that that building that happens on set or is it taught more in a in a practical sense I know. I think nowadays, with places like the AFI and some of the schools that I've done guest speaking at and stuff, I mean, they, they're they're getting an amazing education in terms of lighting from from experts. I didn't have any of that. The people who taught at my so-called film school I went to came out of the National Film Board's documentary Cinema Verite world. So I learned how to make documentaries, but I didn't learn anything about lighting. And as I did it, as years went on, lighting is really what I love the most. That's, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's a corny expression, but painting with light is really satisfying. And I grew up in a house with a lot of art in it. My father was a commercial illustrator. I studied fine art in university. And, um, and to this day, I, 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 I've, I've always been a big proponent of, of, of urging young cinematographers to spend as much time soaking up and getting as heaping helping of fine art as they possibly can get. And it was my experience working on on Game of Thrones that made me realize there was a 
fundamental difference in the way that camera operators in North America versus Europe are trained. And the European ones are coming out of a much more of, 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 of a, of a, of a background steeped in fine art. They've they've all grown up being dragged through all the great galleries of the world, um, and, and they innately understand good composition way better than North American camera operators do as a whole. And, and that really informed the way that... Um, you know, once once that penny dropped for me, I, I realized, okay, you know, I know where the gap is um, for my operators. I mean, I've got great operators um, from coast to coast here, um, but 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 um, using that analogy and like and drilling into them and, and and saying, look, it's not enough just to have the head in the box. <laughs> you can there's a way to make this a, a more enduring and 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 pleasing and or dramatically. Uh, um, uh, effective photograph picture, and 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 I and I often will tell you know say to them, look, if 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 you've got a if you've set a frame up for a master or a close up or whatever it is, a medium shot, and you don't feel like if someone were to take a frame grab of that and print it. Um, would you want to put it on your wall? And if not, then maybe you need to work on this composition a bit more. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, that's, it's, it, it, it does come down to the individual images that you're creating and then just stitching together at 24 frames. Yeah, and, and you know, the, to, to, on, on top of all the other, you know, everything else that had to go on to get you to the place where you're actually on set shooting that scene and, 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 and uh, you know, and having all the, you know, all, everything at your disposal that you uh, that, that you need ahead of time. Absolutely. So you mentioned Game of Thrones, and the there is a, a, a fast forward through your career to you get to a place where you're fairly comfortable. You, you feel comfortable in lighting. You feel comfortable in explaining yourself to a director. But now you're walking into a ses- a, a uh, an episodic that's been well steeped and and well documented in the look of the show. How do you bring yourself to that conversation initially, and then how bring it onto the film as well. Well, what, what happened on that show, I joined the series in season three. Um, uh, season two had only just started to air. And um, uh, they, they were still, if you go back and look at it, season one really doesn't look that great photographically. It's, they started to find their way about halfway through season two. And I think um, the DP, Kramer Morgenthau, uh, more than anybody, and partly Jonathan Freeman, started to really find the look for that show. So by the end of season two, it started to look a lot better. And by the time I got there on season three, uh, with five more different DPs, or four others, there were, there were always five of us each shooting two episodes. We were all there at the same time, um, all, all scratching our heads in the same off, stuffy little office in Belfast trying to figure out how we were going to solve our individual problems. And there was a lot of cross-pollination. So it was, a really, it was a really great atmosphere. And it was one of the small reasons why that show was able to you know, achieve the the level of quality episode in and episode out um, for for all those seasons. But one of the things they did to make sure that no DP came in and tried to reinvent the wheel, and for instance, you know, with an iconic set like the the big throne room, um, and uh, and and have it not feel like the whole rest of the series was when we arrived, they would hand us an iPad with these images on them. This is the one I was handed on season four from my own work on the red wedding scene. Um, Identifying the, uh, the 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 scene and the location um, approved by the producers, so we were given it was called a lookbook, and we were given every single set and location that had been shot before in a way that they liked, and we were also really had it uh, made clear to us, you know, the scenes that they really didn't like. And one of the things that happened was, and and I was lucky when I went into this was that. They were using the same Alexa cameras and the exact same Cook lenses that I'd been using for quite a few years at that point and was very comfortable with. Um, there were a few DPs that came in. They were generally the ones, if you look at the roster of everybody who shot that show, who weren't asked back another season. And they were the ones who, who didn't feel comfortable with it or just kind of didn't... didn't um, I don't know. They, they, it just, you know, it, did, it didn't quite click for them. And I, I was fortunate in that, in that I, um, I didn't. And generally what happened was, um, the DPs were chosen by directors and, um, and basically they, if they trusted the directors, they trusted them to choose their own DP and they wanted that relationship to be good. I ended up, I was supposed to do 
umpteen seasons with a fellow named David Nutter who did the Red Wedding, who directed the Red Wedding. He's a wonderful, wonderful director, but he had um, some personal issues and some health issues. Um, but I ended up working with Michelle McLaren for a season uh, and uh, um, another season with David and then another one with a, a fellow named Matt Shackman on season four. And, um, you know, they're, 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 all, they're all different. I like working with David the best. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll freely admit that. Um, but, um, yeah, it, was, it, it just, you know, you, you, at that point, I'd probably worked with about 300 different directors, so adapting to someone else's style was, was uh, sort of second nature. That's that's terrific. We all know, you talk about um, the certain style of lighting, and we all, you know, we, we won't discuss what happened in later seasons with uh, the conversation around it being too dark or being lit a specific way. One of the things I've noticed that, that you bring to your looks, and I want to know if that's something that came from Game of Thrones is, there's always the ability to see the faces um, in in the in some of the pieces that I've been seeing for you. Do you feel that that's important to the the looks as well, especially in an episodic? Yeah, I, I I think I I you know it's one thing to be daring and go dark, um, but and it's really and it's and it's become very very easy to with digital cameras because you know what you're getting. When we were shooting film, there was always the chance that the that the that the chemicals in the lab were going to be weak by the time your dailies went through and if you underexposed it, there wasn't going to be anything there. If they were perfect, fine, but you couldn't always count on that. And there were too many things that happened between a film camera and when dailies landed um, that could bite you in the butt. So most of us would build, you know, a safety margin into it overexpose it, print it down later so that you had everything. I've always done that. Um, the Red Wedding actually was one case where we went, you know, we went, we went pretty darn dark, but I don't think you're doing your job as a cinematographer if you can't see the performances on the actors' faces. I mean, that's, that's what we're there for. That's our bread and butter. So, um, you know, and... and um, you know, the DP you're talking about who got into hot water in both the finale season of the first go-round yeah. and the new version, Fabian Wagner, he's a superb cinematographer. Um, a lot of time he was under a lot of pressure from a director who wanted to stand out. And, and I, you know, I think, I think that informed some of his work there a bit too. Um, in his, his defense was that, well, you could see everything we wanted you to see. But, <laughs> you know, if you've, got, if you've got an actor doing, like, unbelievably good acting and engaging and, and you know i'm so blessed to have front row seats for awesome acting um you, you want to see it everybody wants to see it and you know i yeah yeah i don't i don't think you're doing your job if you if you don't I, give it to them i do it was always it was always a concern or always a thought in the back of my head that especially after he did um the second one the, the uh, house of dragons um that really it was more of a directorial decision that he was he was obliged to follow uh that's often the case i don't know that for sure but i'm pretty sure <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But yeah, you know, you can see that even even in scenes like this where you're going for a lot of atmosphere, you know, a lot of smoke in the air, a lot of people talking, there is always the focus. You're always drawing the focus to the the intended actors of that scene. Um yeah, I mean you 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 it's it, it you know, when TVs were little, it wasn't such a big deal. Um but now TVs are much bigger. It's much more like going to a theatrical performance and you need to draw the eye the, the, the viewer's eye to where it needs to be and 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 you don't want just like a sea of mud mm. um where a bunch of stuff's going on because you know uh, there's important things that happen within that frame and you and you want to make sure the viewer gets it so they you know, connect the dots later on. I do, and I think that and this. I, I pulled this one from what you sent me, just because I, I like the the separation between the two actors. Even in that intense scene there, where they're face to face, there is there through the lighting, you've actually separated the two, so we know that there are different motivations there, and yet they're they're coming together as one as well. Yeah. Well, what happened here? This is when Marjorie sneaks into the young prince's bedroom, and it's 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 a you know, there's a lot of uh, tension there um but um she walks in he it, it was the first time they they'd done a scene at night in that set and um he's bathed in moonlight um and and you know like traditionally stereotypically the you know a male component is usually the 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 the, the fire the hotter the redder and the female component is the blue one but i wanted to 
you know, I gave her a big candlestick to walk in, which is what's motivating the light on her here. You see her walk in, set it down beside the bed, and that becomes her light. He was lit with the moonlight um, because I wanted everybody to know, yeah, just subtly to say she's wearing the pants in this situation. She's driving the boat, and and um, uh, you know, it, it worked really nicely. It was it was a it was a it was a, a nice tense little scene and something that we hadn't seen before really was fantastic then you get to some outside shots that uh, that that i that i kind of pulled as well which kind of is a whole different way of looking at at how you frame um and light something like this yeah i mean this is this was shot at ben eight benadou i think it's called it's in um outside of wars in morocco i was incredibly excited to be there because that's where they shot a big scene from The Man Who Would Be King, which was one of those movies I saw as a little kid that made me want to be a filmmaker and a cinematographer. Fantastic piece. So yeah. to be standing on that location years later, um, we added a little bit, obviously, with CG to the top, but most of it's practical. And um, we had two days to shoot this scene. We had 800 extras each day. One day we shot towards the uh, the city with all the slaves coming out, and the next day we shot the reverse where we had to duplicate the army so that you could see thousand well, legions of, of guys behind. Um, I just had to pray in this case that the weather would be good and fairly consistent. I had one light and, um, and, and one crane to um, do what I could with. Luckily, we got a little bit of overcast. I was able to give Danny a, a little bit of a backlight here so she'd pop amongst the slaves. And... and um, uh, you know, everybody thought that we had, you know, it was such a big show that we had all the time in the world to shoot this show. It was the most, every every DP that came in behind me, I warned them. They didn't believe me. And um, you'd see them at the end of their first day looking like a, you know, like a, a just, just absolutely drained. It was the most intense shooting experience I've ever had. I the day, shooting days were short. Um, they did give us lots of prep time, but um, to really properly get all the pieces that they expected us to get, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the pace was ridiculous. Well, and they didn't kid around with those environments either. If it was cold, you were cold. Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, having said that, you know, sometimes if it looked cold, it wasn't necessarily cold, which wasn't so good for the uh, actors and all their heavy furs and stuff. But, yeah. I don't know what that was. But So moving on to Ray Donovan. Um, so tell me a little bit about how, how you approached that show, how it came to you in the beginning. Um, I came in on season... Two, uh, a friend of mine, Matt Jensen, had shot season one. Um, apparently, it was you know as as many seasons, first seasons of TV series are. It was a very bumpy experience, and 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 I um, um, I was more comfortable going in on a season two because usually they've the shows have figured out what they are and who they are um, by the time you get going. Having said that, it was still you know there was still a um, uh, you know a major adjustment. The showrunner didn't feel like. Uh, Initially, it didn't feel like she was. It, it was her show, but eventually, we we brought her around and showed her what we could do with it. And um, in this case, I just did. I, I, I you know, they, they had some really great standing sets, and I and I did. I approached it the way I had now become to approach come to approach everything, which was let the location dictate what it's going to look like. Don't go in with a preconceived idea. Don't go in with any, any, I found over the years that any time you went in, you know, with an idea about how you wanted a, a location or a scene to be lit, um, if you, if the location or the set didn't warrant it and you were fighting it, you were always going to lose and it would always feel kind of false. So, um, you know, for the, for the run of that show, um, which I did, you know, again, this was a case where we'd be walk. we shot it at the Sony lot and at the former MGM lot in, in Culver City. Um, almost every day I'd be walking back to the crew park with, with my gaffer and my key grip and looking at each other going like, yeah, that was, we did some great stuff today. Excellent. Do you find, I, I, I noticed that the stills from this are, are much more architectural in their nature, and I, I want to expand on that. It seems that you kind of let, the at least for this show, the architecture kind of lead your design. Um, yeah, up to a point. But the other thing was, I also, you know, if I've got a good operator, I tend to be, I tend to be fairly hands-off with my, my, my crew. I try to get the best crew I can, keep a very light hand on the steering wheel, and let people do their jobs because they like doing their jobs more that way and we all have a better time. It makes my job a little easier. In this case, um, the main operator left to do another show fairly early on, and I had quite a green operator, and I started to, uh, more than I had in quite a long time, really 
start to have a lot more to say about the compositions. And, and compositionally, I think this show probably has more of me in it than most of what I've done on other ones. My, my, my Game of Thrones operators were superb and you know I, I just I, I would mostly let them do their thing because it's for one thing it's more efficient as a DP um, to focus on the lighting and, and everything else rather than trying to do everybody's job all the time anyway it's it just you, you know getting good people around you and letting them do their thing is is has, has been paramount absolutely um, so so that way um, so I wanted to ask a question you mentioned the architecture but I, I do see a lot of of work with defined Finding the characters in in what you're doing. Do you look towards the arc of the show to drive your design, or is it more character driven? Um, it 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 really depends on the script and how much time we've had to had it ahead of time. Um, in this case, we had such a wonderful ensemble cast. Um, but but increasingly, on Ray Donovan, and since then, um, a lot of the directors aren't as accomplished as I was used to working with. Um, you know, once upon a time, only guys, the only people, you know, only super experienced directors would get to sh direct episodic television or, or anything else for that matter. And what started to happen around, you know, about, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, um, you started to get people who didn't have that much experience as directors. And even, you know, some of them... You, might have come out of theater and were superb with getting great performances out of actors, um, but had absolutely no concept how to block a scene. And and one of my theories about you know why you see so much handheld work these days, um, and you know it's really come into vogue is is directors who felt like they had to be, um, you know, sort of and show their authority and blah 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 all the things they teach them in directing school and directing classes and stuff, um, but but didn't really know how to block a scene so that you could so that you could stage it effectively cover it effectively um light it attractively or or effectively um and i found myself starting to have to jump in a lot more heavily on ray donovan and have done since more often than not and um and so making compositions that were you know coherent and that i knew that we could i could i could i could light effectively and also we could you know we could cover it quickly and effectively and still make our day because um you know what what what's happened is that in hollywood is it's getting harder and harder for old white guys to get jobs and this is you know i'm not saying that's a that, that, that's a, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing, um, and I think it's a great thing that we're getting a lot wider mix of people coming in and doing it, and there's bringing fresh life into it. But um, the producers, I guess, luckily for DPs, is under also understand they have to make their day, and um, that's something. <laughs> After after 450 episodes of TV, that's something that I'm good at, and, and they also know that I can make a, a you know a good looking episode from. But that's a that's that's where a lot of that's where they're looking for value from DPs now more than more than somebody who's going to come in and and um, and and you know uh, 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 you know break a lot of new ground or what have you. And right, a lot of exactly. the time, they 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 think they want to, but when you try to, they they. <laughs> I don't like it that much. They, you, they're kidding themselves. You can often see that in in the final project where where it just kind of falls flat because there's not that educated base or experience base um, in the people who've been chosen as the design team. And I think to your point, you're, a lot of what we're seeing now is is the breadth of experience uh, and talented. Um, it's not just talent, but experienced voices that can help elevate is growing a bit, um, you know, and, and so that's helping pr pr uh, pr uh, propel the, the craft forward a bit. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think that's really true. And, you know, I, I, I just I, um, I, I just um, there 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 like a couple of schools out there in the old days. Um, DPs, you know, like I got into hot water when I was shooting the commission. The producer was an old school Hollywood guy, and he didn't think I was being hard enough on the crew because all the the paradigm for DPs back then was this hard ass who just yelled at everybody all day long and was pretty miserable, you know, dictatorial and and um, miserable and and terrifying and scary. And and um, I never I never 
um, embraced that, and and it by and not doing so has has served me extremely well. Um, I think I may have got off on a tangent there, but anyway, anyway. Um, no, but I like it. So you you're not a fan of you doing your own camera work. Um, it's not efficient, and it you know I have done it where I where I've been the DP and the operator. Is this what you you mean operating? Um, uh, you know, you can do it. You know, I've done it for short for for short independent movies. I've done it for you know TV movies, uh, where you're just you know you're shooting for what three or four weeks or something like that. You can't. It's not sustainable. It's it's just it. This job is too hard, especially on a series that's running for you know four, five, six, seven, eight months. You can't. You can't. You can't. It. it you, you can't. You, do, you can't do it well. You need. You need to delegate. Awesome. Let's see what else I've got up here. Oh, that was the Anne Margaret one. Now you were telling me about how how to light her, or I was reading an article that you had had been interviewed in. Well, yeah, I mean, a bunch of um, I've I've worked with some old Hollywood legends quite a few times now, and what I learned early on, it was actually with Patty Duke years ago. If anybody remembers who she was, I did a, a movie with her, and I realized fairly quickly that until I put the camera exactly where they always always shot her. And until I put the camera exactly where they always shot Anne Margaret, which was um, high and 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 very frontal, and litter very flat, they didn't even look like who they were. I mean, you know, the producers would complain. It was it doesn't look like you know. I got I'm paying for Anne Margaret. It doesn't look like Anne Margaret. But um, um, that that was the trick. I mean, they had they, they were so specific with a lot of those old movie stars with how they were photographed. They all had their own very special way to be right. lit and stuff. And you know, I I, I um, on Ray Donovan, we had, uh, I, f- I forget her name. She was an old, uh, uh, very famous diva. Her name escapes me right now. Anyway, we had a scene with her in her, her trailer. And the only logical place to light it one was from the, the window beside her. And she took one look at the win- at that and said, uh-uh, and closed the drape and forced us to light her, light her, light her from the other direction. She was not going to be half lit. No way. <laughs> so, you know, I try to be as natural, you be as, let the location dictate how to how to light as much as possible and, and be as naturalistic as possible but sometimes um those faces come first right exactly you know and and that's and that's key to what we were discussing earlier i i, I really i i agree with you um you know is that you gotta you, you gotta see them on stage you know you gotta see the people that so that we can follow the action and you know uh to to you know you're not you're not doing anybody a service by not making someone who's supposed to be gorgeous as gorgeous as they can be. And, exactly. or, and, and, you know, and sometime, you know, and you, I've worked with Anthony Hopkins and Ed Harris and, um, um, you know, John Voigt. Um, and you know, you want to be as, I, I, I always want to be as true from a lighting standpoint to the location as I can be so that, so that it keeps the, 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 the viewer engaged in the story and doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't throw you out of it. But at the same time, um, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do to, to help them out. So, you know, and, and when this aired, um, I was in, I was actually in Belfast prepping Game of Thrones when, when this episode aired. And, um, I got this phone call from this, with this Husky, she's still got a, you know, sexy voice saying, I just want to thank you for um, making me look so good in that episode because she, you know, she doesn't work that much anymore. That's wonderful. Yeah, no, it, it, that's a fantastic story. So I'm moving into Lovecraft Country. So here is a, a, a something that's more heavy in the VFX. Um, so th- how does that? And uh, I'll turn a little more technical on you. How does approaching something like this that has that necessary component? How does it affect your equipment choices? Uh, well. In this case, um, no, going in knowing that uh, the, that it was going to have a huge VFX element, and I have worked on you know a lot of big VFX movies from fairly early on. Um, I had just recently the the Zeiss Supremes had just come out, the Sony Venice had just come out, um, and I'd been using the same. I'd been using Alexa with Cook S4s and. Ingenue Optimus for ages, and occasionally we would, you know, the cooks had the um, right. data display, um, which had, had come in, you know, like marginally handy on a couple of low, uh, a, a couple of um, 
VisFX laden features that I'd done, but the Zeiss version together in 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 uh, married to the uh, uh, Sony Venice um, gave you everything, just a massive amount, and the VisFX department really um, embraced that idea. And um, but you know that 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 was a bonus for them. Um, but it didn't drive my decision for using them on this show. I just think that that um, I, I just absolutely fell in love with large format w once I saw it, and uh, you know I don't ever want to go back. Which is, and I actually just shot two episodes of 1923 on the new Alexa 35, yeah. using older uh, Leica lenses, and I was, you know, it, we made some gorgeous stuff. I'm mean, very proud of how those episodes look, but. Um, I was continually frustrated by the smaller sensor and the lack of the data display that that you have with the Zeiss. I mean, it tells you everything: the focal distance, that you know, it's 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 all right there, and that saves a lot of time with uh, the VisFX data wranglers. For instance, they're not pestering my camera assistants because they can just look over my shoulder at the monitor and see, see everything see they the need, everything they need through. to know, all the metadata. Yeah, yeah exactly. The LDS is a little bit more limited uh, compared to the Cook slash I. That is that. That's a little bit of the challenge with that. Yeah, I didn't get any complaints from them. So anyway, <laughs> and, and, I, and I love the way the um, the, uh, the the both the Zeiss Supremes and the Supreme Radiance um, render the images, especially with that large format sensor. I mean, I just and I, that's I just don't yeah. want to go back. I just absolutely love it. Um, <laughs> we always love hearing that, um, you know, and, and uh, paired with that Sony Venice, it just has a really nice lush color format. Um, there we go. So, the, you know, it's, it really kind of it, it seems to lend itself to a, more of an ethereal world or an off world type of feel that Lovecraft Country kind of took on from time to time. Yeah. And also when you're doing something with a horror component, which this had um, being able to have incredibly shallow depth of field, like like shallower than even anamorphic lenses without any of the headaches of anamorphic lenses. Um, and, the you know, the fact that they're T1.4 to combined with that with large format. Um, I could I could have something as out of focus in the background or in focus if I wanted, thanks to the incredible speed of the the Venice, because you can crank it up to twenty five hundred, thirty two hundred right. ISO, and stop and and stop down and have Citizen Kane depth of field with it, or I can you know go the opposite direction and only have you know like just I could have somebody standing right behind a character and you can't see them. It, that there is a razor thin it's, it's, depth it's, of field. It's a great tool. And just have a couple more. So yeah, and then that that exterior is always fun too. A lot of, a lot more wide angle use in in Lovecraft Country. I noticed. Um, yeah, quite a bit more. We we tried to sort of work those two ends of the uh, of the spectrum on that show. Um, but uh, I, again, you know, I, you know, you, you you when you're prepping a movie or a TV show with somebody, you kind of have these guidelines that you want to follow as much as possible but you know the minute the minute that it becomes inefficient or the you, you know you need to find another way to do it um it goes out the window like <laughs> just by necessity i wanted to get to so american gigolo i grabbed this because i i had a question um in my limited knowledge but let me let me back away from that so american gigolo you you started that one and you brought it to fruition um it, so and and you you had moved to uh, to using a lot more wide angle for the intimacy of the of the subject matter. So how do you how do you work with the d director to kind of set that? Because now you're setting the tone. You're not walking into a Game of Thrones. This is this is a well, brand new enterprise. I actually didn't, but because um, oh. I didn't, I was on a, I was on Shining Girls in Chicago when they did the pilot for this. Okay, um, and it was shot uh, with vintage uh, Panavision le anamorphic lenses, and I think. Um, mini Alexa, Alexa Mini, um, and they couldn't make. They didn't, for for whatever reasons, they didn't make their days. And um, I had a long track record with the with the creator of the show, Dave Hollander from from uh, Ray Donovan. And and when they put the series together, they said we need someone who can you know make pictures like that, but way quicker. And the first thing I did was, first of all, I we. This is the very first show that was shot with the Sony Venice 2. We had a couple of pre-release models, and it blew our minds how, how good it was, especially at 3200 ISO. Um, and 
they wanted to maintain the anamorphic look, so we, we used Zeiss Supremes and extracted 235 yeah. for it um, so that that would all feel much the same way. But, um, you know, I, by ditching the um, anamorphics, and the slow, the speed of them, and so forth. I mean, just having a lens that's like that's one T14 and a camera that's 3200 ISO. Immediately, you know, you still had to light, but you it, you you could live with way 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 less equipment. We we worked incredibly fast on this, and and were able to make some really interesting images. Now, that that image uh, before was um, Otto Nemens right. developed this um, little LED uh, flashing device, which was which took me back to once upon a time I used to use a thing called a Vericon which um, originally was used on the original Dune movie and French Lieutenant's Woman by Freddie Francis the okay. famous British DP it was a big cumbersome thing Aerie eventually streamlined it so that you could you could dial um, uh, any colored light into the shadows that you wanted to and I used to use that a lot when I was shooting film because it would you could open up the blacks and stuff in, in, in digital, you kind of didn't need to do that anymore, but what you could, the great thing about this was we wanted to push coolness into the sh shadow areas and keep the highlights nice and warm um, as a contrast device, and, and that's that's what that's all about. Ah, okay, and I think I actually grabbed, I love this shot, very um, Hopper-esque, so, so just love that. But yeah, no, I started to see that, that there was a lot of blue, where did I go? I guess I didn't. Oh, that's the. So I started to see a lot more blue in your in the night scenes, and I was wondering if that was accentuated a little bit. It was a little bit of a nod to the original movie too. Um, you know, way because there hadn't really been any um, any nods to it in the pilot, and we wanted to you know we wanted to just have a little bit of something that would that would connect with the with with what at the time was one of the most stylish movies ever made. I, I do I do recall. I did bring this. I, I just I I love the 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 framing of this piece. And you talk about you know if if making a an individual image. And I and this is really one of those ones that stands out. You're giving the characters the actors a lot to play with in this scene. Um, yeah, you know I I don't uh, I never block actors and I never say, you know, you, you know, I always give them lots of leeway to move around. Um, uh, I don't like to, to tie them down. Um, yeah. And in this one, um, luckily on this one, the, the director was a fellow named Tucker Gates, who's, who's got an impeccable visual taste. So when you set up a shot like this, um, they, they dig it and they embrace it and they, they could get it. Um, you know, sometimes you, you would be amazed how many directors are directing who have no visual sense whatsoever. You know, a lot of them, you know, they say that, that you know, psychologists say that we're all either, you know, primarily um, visual, tactile or auditory. And obviously I'm visual first, tactile and auditory is a, like a distant, past i mean i i can't hear nuances in performances that some amazing directors can hear but they also that on the other hand haven't got they'll walk in with 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 the page and know what they need from the actors but they have absolutely no clue where to put the camera and you'd you'd be absolutely amazed how often they're at a complete loss um and what I tell them, especially if they're new ones, and I've worked with a lot of young ones now, is is, is um, if, if 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 the actors are rehearsing and the DP and the operator are standing in that corner, that's probably where you want to stand. And <laughs> and I've taught a lot over the years to stand where you think the camera's going to be because it it informs the actors for how they're going to play something. If they're not given any direction in terms of where to where to go or where to be, um, um, they get visibly uh distressed uh, by it because it's like who am i am i playing to that or i'm playing to this and 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 the good ones all know are all super uh tuned into how best to play for the camera that that I, that's a, a nice soft um directorial conversation to have is just place yourself in the room and the actors will figure it out Exactly right. If you're and if you're in the right spot, and 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 you know, I'll I'll when the blocking starts, I'll I'll inevitably gravitate to the corner where I know, or the side of the room, or whatever, where um, um, it it, it, it probably is going to be 
most attractive, but also is going to be able to be lit the most attractively. So, you know, you don't stand with your back to the window because, for instance, because then everything's going to be front lit and flat lit. You usually, I'll usually go to the opposite direction from where I think the light's going to be coming from. I'm just seeing what else is here. That's the video. Oh, and that was the end. So that's, so that's kind of what I had prepared. We've, we've been talking for a good long time. I didn't know if anybody had any questions um, for Rob that you might want to come. Come on up. We have a mic here so we can hear you. And by the way, um, I'm always available to answer any questions with anybody. Um, and uh, if, if you think of a question after this, you can get a hold of me uh, through Instagram, direct message on Instagram. It's RBMASC, and I'm happy to uh, um, uh, help any way I can. I, I actually really enjoy doing that. Yes. Hi. Uh, my name is Mansoor. I study film directing at the School of Visual Arts in New York. Uh, you made me laugh when you said something about directors who like handheld, because I just finished a thesis that were mostly handheld, but I wasn't trying to collaborate with my DP as much as I can. Um, my, I have just a, a, a few quick questions, if I may uh, ask. Uh, the first question is, um, when you have a movie, you have an idea of a movie, a story, do you determine what camera you're going to use at that stage? Does, does it, um, is there a difference between cameras in terms of story delivery? That, that's my first question. Um, a lot of people think so, but um, I, pardon me. I don't. I think it's important as a cinematographer to use with the tool that you're most comfortable with. And, and Roger Deakins and I have had this conversation. He'll tell you the same thing. Um, you know, like there, there's a real vogue right now for, for get, using vintage lenses because everybody says, you know, digital's too sharp, blah, blah, blah. So, there, you know, there's a big race to and a huge demand for vintage lenses to, to more than cameras. I think the, the, the lenses offer more bring more character to it than an individual camera does by far because most of the cameras now are so amazing it, it doesn't really matter but I've I've always as soon as, as soon as everybody's going that direction that, that's usually when I start going that way and, and everybody's you know racing to use these lenses that used to drive me nuts 25 years ago because they, they, they did all the things that annoyed people and now everybody wants that stuff and I want the best most consistent lens I can get. And, you know, for me, it's now the Zeiss Supremes. Um, for Roger, it's Cooks. Um, and, you know, a lot of other DPs will tell you the same thing. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think in those terms, but, you know, one camera is going to do something radically different than another one does. And um, maybe that comes out of doing film for years too, where, where the, the, the variable was what film stock you used. That would that would make a big difference, you know, if you, if you used like a low contrast Fuji stock versus a high contrast Kodak stock or what have you. That would change the character of the film. But but yeah, not the camera. I don't think. Uh, I just have uh, another question. Uh, what's your approach for natural lighting? Uh, do you think uh, there's many movies that obviously used natural lighting there? But what's your approach? For it, are you a big supporter of it, or or everything needs to be motivated in a if, film? If I could use only natural lighting, I would use only natural lighting, or you know what what what's in the environment. Um, but not to say that I don't modify it quite a bit. I mean, there's a you'll you'll see in the Game of Thrones episodes um, a huge amount of net, you know daylight scenes, but we had the resources to heavily manipulate it with negative fill and what have you, so that you could still get some modeling and some shape and what and whatnot. And what I learned shooting with the Venice 2 last year was that with, with, that, with, the, with the latitude that it's got and the speed that it's got, it lets me do that even more. And, and that's one of the things I love about it because I can, I, you know, I've, I've, on my Instagram, I posted some stills where, with, with that, where normally I would have had to put ND gels on the, on the windows and, or add a massive amount of fill and so on and so forth. Um, now I don't have to. I mean, I'm still controlling the image and manipulating it, but I'm not using massive amounts of light to balance to the background and, and, and so forth. So it, these new cameras are going to increasingly let you really become more naturalistic if, if that's the goal. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Thanks. Next up.
Hi, uh, Matt Lynn. I'm a cinematographer. Uh, I, my question was about uh, crewing, essentially. I recently did a feature in Vancouver, and I was the only person I could bring up, so I had none of my normal people. And I had to really rely on the line producer to like find crew. Uh, when you're looking for a gaffer and a camera operator, I mean, assuming they all have the technical abilities, what are you looking for specifically in that crew in the local? Somebody place? I like, oh. personally, <laughs> someone I want to spend 12 hours a day with, because um, I don't care how good they are. If they're if they're if they're dicks, I don't I don't I, I, I don't, I don't want to work with them. I want to work with friends and people people who I can make laugh and they can make me laugh and 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 we're gonna have a, a, a you know. A, you know, be friends by the end of it. Um, and hopefully you found some up there. There's, there, there are some good ones. Oh, they're great. Yeah. Camera operators are amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, my name's Matt. I'm also a cinematographer. Uh, Hi. With filters, uh, do you use them? What's your approach to that? And also color correction. What's your approach to that? Filters? Yeah. Like, like diffusion or what? Yes, I'm 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 down to now not using that much. I mean, on on American Gigolo, actually, there's some flashback scenes where I used a lot um, because they wanted to in the pilot. The flashbacks looked the same as present day, and all the viewers were totally confused by it. So when we went into it, we we, we did a lot more of that, and I and I did I used um, I used more more heavy diffusion, and also knowing that I was going to be adding increasing amounts of live grain to the flashback so they're kind of like a little grainier and grittier after the fact um uh with here's one thing i've learned with with hd and posting especially you know like the venice was 8.6k i mean that's a lot of resolution even if we were you know after we pulled it down to 4k for post um and the same on shining girls which was which was shot with the venice one but they were both posted in dolby vision and hdr and one of the surprises to me was that when I, on set, if I, for instance, usually use, let's say, a half Hollywood Black Magic just to take a little bit of the edge off and, to, and you know, to the, um, to, to the images and, and smooth skin tones out, what have you, um, in a normal post situation, that was more than enough. But once we got into the color suite and we were finishing in HDR and Dolby Vision, um, it was like we weren't using anything. And so we started like banging in a lot more with these lenses. And um, I was like using like ridiculous amount. And when you know guest DPs would come in to to you know do pickups or whatever, they couldn't believe that we could possibly uh, get away with that much diffusion, not have it look like mud. But um, the HDR process just sucks it right up. Hello. When you were first starting out, I know you kind of have to like take gigs where you can get them, but when you get to a place where you can choose your projects, what do you look for in a project and how do you like decide when to come on to something you know what the big one still is 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 how i feel i'm uh, how 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 i how much i think i'm going to enjoy working with somebody and and you know in any of my um past experiences where i haven't it usually came down to you know just 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 not loving whoever the director was or you know some element of it um and you know, luckily, you're not. You know, you're you're not going to spend the next thirty years working on the same job. Um, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel on the good one, on the on both the bad and the good ones. Um, and you know, you know, when you when you find that 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 you know person that you just love working with, and you know that you elevate their work and they elevate your work, that's the person you want to find out. That's the that's the project you want to work on. Thank you. <coughs> My name is uh, Pavan. I'm from India. Uh, I'm a writer-director. They say that uh, uh, a DP and director are like wife and husband, right? They have to make the marriage work. And they, they, they are, right? It's true. And, yeah, and there will always uh, be differences. Um, so you mentioned that uh, if a director doesn't have uh, the visual sense, it's challenging for a DP to work uh, with him or her. So how does it work the other way? I mean, I, I need uh, your advice from my side. Yeah. Um, how, like, uh, how does it work when uh, uh, the director picks up a DP and the DP doesn't have uh, the uh, enough prowess to light up or make the scene talk? Um, boy, that's. <laughs> 
I don't know. I mean, I mean, if the director has a really strong opinion and reasons behind that opinion that the DP can appreciate, I don't, I don't know why the DP wouldn't jump on board with it because the director hires the DP in most cases, um, except on episodic where you know the directors are the guests and the, it's the DP's job to be consistent from from week in to week out. But on a feature, um, gosh. Um, no, they also say that uh, when the director doesn't have the visual sense, the DP becomes the ghost director or the direct director. Is that true? That that that's probably pretty true. That's that's absolutely true. Um, you know, but but you know, it depends on you know how you define. Some people define directors differently. I mean, if it if, if and there are ones who who are they're super literature literary. They're super literate. Um, and they've got an incredible year for nuance and performance and that kind of thing that, that, that you know, I, I know I don't have. Um, and when I have been directing uh, stuff, I directed a couple of episodes of Ray Donovan, um, performances that I thought were absolutely, you know, I could not tell the difference between two performances by, by Liev Schreiber, take three and take four. And the, the showrunner, writer, just said, and, and editor all said, oh, slam dunk. Episode uh, take two, way better. I couldn't I couldn't tell the difference. That's that's my shortcoming. But I can I can tell you which one looked better. <laughs> hey there, my name is Matt. I'm in uh, equipment sales. Hi Matt. Um, and uh, so two questions I have for you. One is, as a cinematographer, what would you say your your most shining moment is creatively? And second, which project did you have the most fun on? Wow. Um, well, I had the most fun on a musical I did years ago with Carol Burnett and Tracy Ullman and Tommy Smothers for Disney. It was wow. a kid show. It was, a mu it was the Once Upon a Mattress. That was the most fun I had. Was it the best thing I ever did? Not really, but, you know, working on a show with singing and dancing and, and comedy all day long, that was the most fun I ever had. Um, most satisfying, I think, there were two or three episodes of Game of Thrones that I did that I feel like every shot was as close to perfect as it could possibly be. And it just felt really great because there's, there are so many things that can get in the way of, of making it as good as you have in your, in your mind's eye when you walk to work and, you know, when you go to work in the morning, um, there's just so many things that can get in the way of it, whether it's, whether it's inconsistent weather. So you can't, you can't keep a consistent look or, or, you know, a piece of equipment doesn't show up or, you know, there's a million little things that can get in the way of that happening. And somehow or another on, you know, yeah, there were of the, of the eight full episodes I did, I'd say three of them were, are, are, were as close to perfection as, as, as it could get. And sometimes they were even, you know, better than I was, than I was hoping for. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, Robert, that's certainly a lot for us to chew on, and, and I appreciate your insight um, in, into all of the work that you're doing and, and really kind of how you bring out yourself in, in the work that you're doing. I, I like the, the husband and wife comment about the two of them going together. Yeah. Um, so you, you jumped up real quick. We, I got like two seconds. Go for it. I'll go for it. Hi, my name's Jerome. I'm a young photographer. Uh, you, meant, you spoke a little bit about planning things out, not letting the actor stand around. Do you think that gets in the way? Like, is the planning too much? Uh, does it stop the scene from feeling there's, uh, spontaneous? There's no substitution for prep and, and just anticipating everything and having a plan okay. when you go in. But having said that, um, the, the more you do it and the longer I've done it, the more, the more flexible you become because you know that whatever comes your way, you're going to be able to handle it. I call it Napoleon's battle plan which was based on a, a, a supposed quote of his historically where somebody asked him what his plan was for this upcoming battle. And he said, the plan is, first we go there, and then we see what happens. And that doesn't mean that you don't have your cavalry ready to deploy and your infantry and your, you know, your artillery and whatever, however you need to deploy it. And you've got a you know, you know how that's going to happen, but you also need to be really flexible. And that, that I think, more than anything kind of encapsulates, you know, my approach to walking on a set every morning. Um, you know, I know how I'd like it to go in a perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world. Movie sets certainly aren't. And, right. Uh, yeah. Thanks yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Equipment, positions, time of day even, you know, Something clouds. breaks down. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the huge battle scene I did, for instance, on season seven of Game of Thrones, um, where the first time the dragon, you know, actually is used in battle, 
um, we plan and plan and plan and plan that um, to the point, and there was such a big visual effects component to it that everything was had to be very locked down in advance, and there wasn't because because every every one of those shots was budgeted months in advance. I, you couldn't you couldn't vary because they'd already done previs on them. Some of the animation was already starting to be done, so. All the creativity had to be. It was like it, it done well in advance. It was the way Hitchcock used to work. He would do all his. He would storyboard the whole movie. He he was quoted as saying that was the creative part for him. The shooting part was the boring part, and that is really true in 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 movie making where there's a massive uh, uh, amount of action and vis effects components because. All that stuff has to be locked down and budgeted in advance, and it doesn't leave a lot of creativity on set. Now, everybody thinks that, oh, it must have been so exciting to shoot that huge action sequence. Well, you know what? There's not many things that are more boring than shooting a huge action sequence because, <laughs> I mean, the most excitement I had on the, on that big battle sequence was, was wondering if the sun was going to stay out while we tiled you know, 300 guys to make them look like 10,000 guys because you had to move them all down the field. And if the light changed between shots, it was going to look like shit. So um, that's, that's what kept me on the edge of my seat. But the rest of the shooting of it was like, okay, now we do this, now we do this, now we do this. We, you know, all the creative work was done three months prior to that. And my favorite thing is to walk into a in, into a into an attractive room with a couple of great actors who have some great dialogue, and let's see what happens because none of those visual effects people are there to tell you you can't do this, you can't do that. That's that's what I really like. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks to everybody for hanging out with us for an hour here at South by Southwest. Thank you.